Hello there, I'm Tom, and in today's episode of Make and Mix Tapes, we're talking all about building editorial brands. Make and Mix Tapes is about the entrepreneurs, creators, and marketers building impressive things in their field. Today, I'm joined by Nitsan Pellet, Director of Content at Optimove and Editor-in-Chief at PostFunnel. Here, we talk all about the importance of creating content to steer a conversation and why the team at Optimove decided to create a separate, editorially driven brand in PostFunnel, where Nitsan shares the massive impact it's had not only on traffic generation, but brand equity. We also talk about how Nitsan started his career as a sports journalist and the lessons he learned moving from that world into the wild world of SaaS content marketing. Enjoy. It looks like you got your start in sports journalism and traditional radio, right? Yes. The very first thing I did in media was um, I was a local sports reporter in a very small town in Israel. My, the first big project, I um, literally I took a tape recorder and a notepad, <laughs> pencil or a few, and I just went to visit young athletes, aspiring athletes from this, within this really small town, and just talk to them about, you know, their dreams, their day-to-day, how they balance school and five practices a week. And I always loved writing and I always loved sports. I mean, since I was, whatever, eight, ten, ten years old. And when I did that project, when I was about 15 years old, I knew all like, this is for me, right? Writing about sports. If I could make a living writing about sports, I would be happy, you know, for the rest of time. And then I did work for, well, Israel's equivalent of ESPN yeah. for uh, the, almost a decade. And that's when I also started doing traditional radio. I remember I was listening to Bill Simmons' podcast, right? the sports guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Back around 05, 06, 07, when it was just really started. Maybe even 05 is too early. And I started, I wanted our website, Sport 5, to start doing podcasts. And that was around, again, 07, maybe 08. And it was just way too early for, you know, that. It, it was just too hard to, to produce. It's, it's not as easy as uh, nowadays. So it just never happened. And then I started doing some local radio, some live games as, as well, basketball games. But then at a point, you know, working in traditional media, it's such a, I used to always call it like, it's like an ant farm. You got the queens and you got all the rest, right? Like 98% of the employees, which are the small walking ants. Yeah. And, and if you cannot break this barrier, you will stay a walking ant for decades. I mean, there's like this no middle management section of the industry that's just comfortable to make a living for a long while. It's either you're a walking ant, especially in a small market like Israel, or you're like a big talent. And after giving it all of my 20s, I decided to turn this into a habit and try and, you know, uh, make content for tech, basically. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. So I also noticed you started your own sports media company at some point. And I think on your LinkedIn, uh-huh. it says, we tried yeah. doing a local version of Early Days Bleacher Report. We yes. failed. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the story behind that? Yeah, so... So Bleacher Report, I don't know uh, how many people are, still remember how it started, but Bleacher Report, which is now a huge 
sports media um, brand owned by, I think, TNT, was purchased by for like $200, $200 million about a decade ago. But they started as a um, UGC website late the first decade of the you know, 2000s, just user-generated content. People would submit articles. They would edit them and publish them. It allowed them to obviously get uh, a lot of different angles on every team around the United States because every team has its fans. And then they were able to really turn it into a serious full-time media brand and eventually hire, you know, traditional writers and reporters. Many of them started as these, um, like, bloggers. So then we tried to do something similar here in Israel at about uh, 2013, 2014. So it's just too small of a market Mm. for this kind of thing to succeed here. There's another Israeli media company that's called... Um, how they call themselves today, I think Minute Media used to call themselves FTB Pro, which is what they did was way more ambitious than what we tried. They took the Bleacher Report model and instead of American sports, they took it to football, I mean soccer, right, for Americans, but football and and worldwide. So like from the get-go, they kind of like said, okay, we'll get to the American market when we get there, but first let's conquer the world with football. So they did Bleacher Report for football globally and it worked really well. And today it's a company, I don't know, they're making tens of millions of dollars and they, like, they're like a pretty big company. So there's something to it, to this attempt to start as a blog and then turn it into a, a traditional media. But our attempt um, was just, uh, it was not ambitious enough. Oh, interesting. So you think you should have, you know, raised the ceiling a little bit on that? Yes, and I think that's a, that's a lesson I've, um, I keep learning you know so many things would just limit you right Mm. so why limit yourself right why add another limitation right with your ambitions ambitions just you know be as crazy as possible the world would would make sure to limit you right so (laughs) whatever you can you know just go crazy just i think you should yeah um why limit yourself when someone else is going to try and do it yeah it's going to happen eventually (laughs) so you got your start in the world of sports and then why why did you decide to jump into the world of tech? And also, how did your experience in sports journalism kind of prepare you and maybe give you a different perspective? Yeah, so moving into tech was basically because I started a family and working in traditional sports media in a small market is um, just how to pay the bills. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, there's tens of thousands, maybe millions of traditional media people around the world that should every morning say thank you to Google because mm. Google made content important for everyone, right? doesn't matter what kind of company. You need a blog, you need eBooks, you need all those things for people to find you. And then if you are a good writer and a good editor, I mean, you can find a job in tech that's just a, a way more sane kind of uh, way of making a living, then I think you should try to cross over, you know, when you're young, in my 20s, you know, before I got married, before the kids, it was all fun and games. I used to say, I'm happy 29 days a, a month, you know, with my work. And I'm just, I am only a little disappointed one day a month when I, when I get paid. Yeah. Uh, but I would much rather have this than the other way around, you know, doing something I don't like for 30 days and just be happy for the one day I get the, the salary. But then obviously, as you start a family, there's more bills to pay, so... And, and after spending a decade, you know, walking the corridors with all these famous, well, local famous athletes, 
it feels like, all right, you did that thing. It's awesome. It was fun. But now it's time to do something that's a little more, um, I don't know, just mature, maybe um, grown-up-y. Yeah. Uh, so then my first attempt was this kind of like a local bleacher report. But then because I started something in, in tech, and Israel is such a crazy tech hub, mm. I just naturally started making connections that eventually then led to the next job and to the next one. And so, and how you asked how being a sports journalist at the beginning was, I don't know, how it affected or helped. So... At least in Israel, and I know this also from my experience with the United States, sports journalists, they always, at least again, most of them are looking for the, there's two things I would say. One, they're looking for this the human element, every yeah. story, and they are in always like in this hyper mode, 24-7 news cycles, you know, um, short deadlines. And when you combine the two and you take them into tech, at least in content in tech, especially in B2B, you really stand out. Um, because, you know, if you come into a company that publishes one blog a week, you're like, is that all? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing with the rest of your time? And so that's one thing, the, the, the pace. And the human aspect, I think when I start, started moving into tech and reading more and more B2B blogs, I found that most of them were probably written by the same freelancer somewhere, sitting somewhere and writing them, right? They all yeah. look, and look the same, feel the same. They start the same. Or they lack this even attempt to move people. At mm. least four or five years ago, I think, people would still think, all right, in B2B, it's all about the features. It's all about the use cases. It's all about, I don't know, the sales process and the, and the, and the price eventually. But... It doesn't matter if it's B2B or B2C, it's eventually a person that is buying your product and consuming your content. Um, the better you connect with them on an emotional level, the stronger you resonate with them, the more meaningful the experience you gave them, the better the chances are that they will eventually purchase your product. Mm. So, because it's eventually, it's people, you know, once procurement would go, if one day procurement for B2B companies uh, for, would be all done by robots, mm-hmm. at an AI, Maybe then B2B and B2C sales would be completely different. But as long as it's, it's people that are part of the decision process, then adding this relevancy, this day-to-day human touch into everything that you write can help you stand out. Again, in a sea of uh, B2B blogs, it's just at least for me, they feel like they were all written by the same person. Interesting. And so how do you add that storytelling and emotionally driven, that person-to-person element in mm-hmm. B2B, especially because when I look at the Optimove blog, you're writing a lot of content around, you know, CRM-related topics. How, mm-hmm. how do you kind of bridge the gap between yeah. the personal element and such a technical topic? So it's just important to distinguish to make when we say CRM for Optimove, we mean the B2C kind of CRM. Right? So not the B2B kind of CRM, the Salesforce where you manage your contacts and, and long sales process. When we say CRM, we mean that our clients are B2C companies that are sending out campaigns every day and text messages and social media posts and stuff like that. And That's right. uh, their clients, so they're selling consumer goods and, and retail and gaming and stuff like that. So that's the kind of CRM that's um, relationship marketing, basically. Right. And to answer your question, how the human element plays a part here, it's because it starts and ends with a relationship. 
And everything that we write, may, it could be about segmentation, it could be about email deliverability, it could be about all those you know, technical aspects of relationship marketing and retention and loyalty. But eventually every example that we need to use, there's people behind it. Every time mm-hmm. we talk about the single customer view, right? This huge spreadsheet with all the data and all those rows of you know, numbers and everything, it all represents people and it all represents customer experiences and it all represents gifts that they bought or products that they returned. And these are all experiences that we all share. And then to me, it's, I see it, it's quite easy because of the industry niche that we operate in. Everything we write, we can relate it to the person that's reading it. And then my trick that I took from growing up reading sports magazines is to look for the day-to-day, the daily reference, Mm. mention it in the first paragraph, and then in some way or another, look back into it with the final sentence of the post. It's a trick. It works almost every time. Sometimes when it's too hard to come up with it, I won't force it. So I'll just go without it. So then maybe 20% of our blog posts won't have any of this. But the rest of the time, when, when it's easier and it comes up uh, naturally, it, when it doesn't feel like too uh, forced, just it's like the wrapping of, of something, right? It's the beginning and the end. And in the middle, there's a bunch of graphs and screenshots and <laughs> stuff. But, um, yeah. but that's the subject matter experts brings in anyway. So I'm only in charge of the first paragraph, the last paragraph, and it's the easy part. That's interesting. Do you have an example of that kind of day-to-day reference being applied to content at all? Like, what would it look like? Yeah, all right. So let's say that we're talking about, well, it's a topic that's right now, it's very, uh, is the top of our list is um, returning products, right? Because right. Uh, December was the strongest online shopping season in the history of humankind. And because most people, more than ever, purchase things online, even gifts for others, because of obviously coronavirus limitations, then obviously it means that more people would return things because they're getting things that no one ever, you know, touched and saw before they bought. Mm. So we talk about product returns quite a lot because we've established by research that when, when a client returns a product, it is most likely a good sign for, well, when you test it against uh, lifetime value mm. of the client within, of the customer within the brand. So the kind of clients that return products there's uh, better chances to get them to shop again um, and to increase, increase their lifetime value. So anyway, if we're writing something about uh, product returns, now in January, you know, post-holidays and everything, then it's very easy, I think, to come up in the first paragraph with a sentence or two that first connect the reader to the more human aspect of it all. Again, before you go into the technicalities. And you just mentioned something from your personal life or you make it up, right? <laughs> About something that someone bought to you and you had to return it or some funny anecdote. And if we look into ourselves and people that we know, then most likely we'll come up with a story or two that we have in our back pocket that's relevant and kind of funny. And if you need to change the details a little to make it even a little more funnier or, or easier to relate to, to make it a little more generalized, then I would mention it in the first paragraph. And then I would always, as I'm writing or editing, if it's someone else who wrote the main part of the blog, then I'm keeping in mind how I started it and how I want to go back to this at the end and, and look back to it. So 
if I would say something about a product that I had to return, uh, and in the final paragraph of the blog, I would say something about the key takeaways, right, of the blog, because almost every blog ends with the key takeaways. So um, I would say something about maybe a wordplay, right, maybe with the words takeaway, right, with the takeaway, or maybe with the, I'll ask the reader to, um, I don't know, return for more next week. And then I'll use the return word to just connect it to the product return that I mentioned in the first paragraph. Something that's just a little more memorable just to make someone, I don't know, make it a little lighter. Most mm. of B2B writing is, I think, um, too dull and serious most of the time. Yeah, stuffy. So that's the, the ways that we try to just spice things up a little bit. Again, it's still, it's not, we're not the Rolling Stone. <laughs> um, of course. No, our audience expects us to be, but just a little flavor. Mm, yeah, make it a little bit more interesting. And that's a that's a really interesting insight into kind of how you execute on the content. Going up a level, why have you guys decided to create a separate publication in PostFunnel as well as the Optimove blog? Yeah, so, you know, PostFunnel is a professional publication for relationship marketeers completely owned and operated by Optimove. And the question you ask, why... Optimove decided, you say you, it wasn't me, right? I joined uh, a year and a half ago. The thing exists since, I think, 20, late 2017, early 2018. So first, it's because Optimove not just believes, but knows the value of great content for the, to help the marketing efforts and, and sales efforts. I bet right. that makes your job a lot easier. Yes, because there's a firm belief. And when I say belief, again, belief is, a, is it's not a strong enough word, I think. Like people just know, they understand, they know the, the, yeah. the, the power of content. And then they wanted to double down on it. And when they did uh, uh, some free something years ago, their idea was to launch PostFunnel. And at the beginning, it was mostly, um, I would say, a glorified blog. It wasn't a true publication. It was just a blog on steroids, if you, if you like. It was prettier than the average blog. It was written by professional writers and not subject matter experts and was published uh, publishing five full-blown thousand words articles a week every day so it's like a great blog times five and when i joined so again with my background it was very easy for me to see what changes i, I think i can um, implement to take it to the next level so we started doing more things that are not necessarily about relationship marketers but are more for relationship marketers. Mm. Uh, so speak to our readership instead of trying to always educate them. Um, we started doing news. So we would have more of a flow kind of content next to our stock kind of content. But again, if the, the answer to your question here of why it happened, uh, they started it, is still evolving. Mm. There's no like a final verdict. And just an hour ago, and I'm not even kidding you, an hour ago, another reason to why it's so good that we have PostFunnel came to my mind. And it was that we had a little internal discussion about the importance of brand equity in B2B. Yeah. Because many times in B2B, people tend to think, again, that the process of eventually buying or paying for a service would be all about features and feet and price and stuff like that. So, and it's not like we consumer goods where the brand plays a huge role, right? You would buy Apple because you're an Apple guy and he would not because he's an anti-Apple. So in B2B, there's this, you know, people think that it, 
and I think they're right, that it plays less of a role. But then within our internal discussion, one major brand that's a competitor was mentioned and someone on, on our company said, they have, these guys have brand equity mm. that helps them close deals and even take away clients from us. And then I said, ah, you know, it makes sense because this company, they also have a B2C arm and people know them. People know the logo, know the name. When they approach a company with their B2B arm, most likely the person on the other side, he already knows this, this name, this company, it helps, right? Yeah. And when we approach someone, especially in uh, new markets or new verticals, they, they never heard the word Optimum before. They think we're doing something with public transportation usually. And, um, <laughs> and then I said, all right, hey, we got, Opti- we got PostFunnel. That's basically a B2C arm of what we do. We yeah. can use that to, to help build this brand equity. So that's just another reason that I actually really thought of uh, just an hour ago. But what it really, really allows us day in and day out to do is to first write about things. You know, CRM in B2C is not as prevalent yet as other technologies, other methods in marketing and in tech. The gaming industry, you know, everybody knows how to do CRM and they're great at it. But other industries, travel, even though they had a horrible year, even retail and many others, they are still getting to know the world of CRM in B2C. And so for us, PostFunnel allows us to make sure the conversation about the importance of CRM in B2C and what is CRM in B2C and talk about the problems of, of relationship marketing in B2C mm. uh, to, to make sure that this conversation, first of all, just to make sure that it's happening day in and day out. Someone is writing about it, that there's social media on it, about it, there's newsletters, there's interviews. So we're keeping the conversation going without even mentioning Optimove or our features or whatever. We don't, we, most of the times we do not mention Optimove ever mm. in articles. So first, we, we, it helps us keep the conversation going. Second, it helps us frame the conversation and lead it towards the places that we know help eventually Optimove close a deal. Mm. If the entire conversation in B2C CRM would be about, let's say, say brand equity. So obviously it does not help Optimove because of bigger name players in the market. But if we can steer the conversation to be around orchestration mm. and AI, multi-channel marketing, uh, so that helps us because that's where we're great. And if you can convince uh, generations, you know, of, of CRM marketeers that those are the important things that would drive your business forward if you do CRM in B2C properly, then they will grow up and, and mature as marketers, understanding that a solution such as Optimove is the best for them. Oh, I totally agree with that, yeah. So I would say, again, we, we keep the conversation going, we frame the conversation, and eventually it helps us build micro funnels Yeah. that yeah. we just... From one article on PostFunnel, you say you want to read more. For more in-depth, we, t- we send you to the Optimum blog. And the truth is, is the PostFunnel is there's no other channel with better quality of referrals to Optimum than PostFunnel. Amazing. It's responsible to about 1% of the Optimum traffic. That's it, mm-hmm. just 1% of the Optimum traffic. But it's responsible to almost, for almost 10% of downloads on Optimum. Right? Amazing. So the audience that goes from PostFunnel to Optimove is highly engaged and understands the values of the company and, and our product. When they click, they go. And when they get there, they actually download stuff and read more. 
Yeah, that imbalance, you know, the fact that it's only 1% of traffic, but 10% of actual conversions speaks volumes, right? And it's funny because I found out about PostFunnel before I ever learned about Optimove. I must have read about two or three blog posts. And this was a few years ago when I was B2B only as well. So as a marketer, it was, you know, it's definitely working as a brand awareness play, right? Yes. Exactly. So it, it looks like it's doing the trick. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It helps us reach potential customers in a way, way earlier stages of the funnel. And this might it's be like a bit top, of a top funnel. Yeah. This might be a bit of an arbitrary question, but like, how do you decide what go what topics to write about on the Optimove blog versus PostFunnel? Or is that very easy? <laughs> um, it's easy now. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, again, those are questions that we've been asking ourselves for a long while. But the way we do it now is structured. Mm. I have a list of almost 30 topics. I've compiled this list. You can call them topics, you can call them keywords. Yeah. I compiled this list in the first month after I joined the company, talking to everyone, all the team leaders, all the different departments, just you know, taking the most important topics for them. And since then, we've updated a little on the edges. So we got this list. And we would talk about this, this let's say, 25 topics. We would talk about them on post-funnel and on the blog. But the only thing that matters is the level of, well, where it sits on the funnel, right? Yeah. If, if we'll talk about it in a higher level, in a more industry trends level, in a more 101 level, get to know something, some tips and tricks, those kind of things, it would go to post-funnel. And once we obviously talk about things that are, you need, if you're already a CRM marketer and you just want to get better at doing this or that, then most likely you will find that kind of piece on the blog where it would be more specific and it would follow specific features, if not with the optimal product, then similar products. I mean, we would show you how you do it with the optimal product, but if you are a client of some other similar product, you could do it with yours or sometimes even with Excel. And when I mentioned those micro funnels, let's say we take one word out of this list and I will not surprise anyone that this, is, this word is on the list, let's say segmentation. So every time we write about segmentation in a higher level sense, in industry trend sense, again, in a, in a more one-on-one sense, we don't post funnel, but then we would make sure that the links from within this article, the banners that we put towards, uh, that refer you to Optimove, the bullet points that we enter would refer you to more segmentation top articles on post funnel, either downloadables or gated content of some kind or whatever. And those create these micro funnels that I think at the heart of that number I gave you before, that's 1% of the traffic, but 10% of the download. Because people are, if someone goes into post funnel and he reads something, they read something and they say, all right, I like where this is going, but I think I already know that. And right then they get a link that says, hey, if you already know that, here's a more professional kind of content. (laughs) So they just, when they get to optimal.com, they're so ready just to consume more of that exact content. Yeah, absolutely. And at first glance, it seems quite difficult to manage two blogs, but by the sounds of it, from your experience in the world of sports journalism, it's like, you know, looking at a blog that only publishes once a week is, you know, child's play, right? What do your editorial processes look like for both the Optimum blog as well as PostFunnel? So first of all, in 2020, we were able to go from one blog a week to 
almost three on average. Nice. And go from five articles a week on PostFunnel to five articles and five news items. So we actually doubled content wow. PostFunnel. And that was partially because we were all working from home mm-hmm. and there's more time to just sit and write content. Right? Yeah as opposed to commuting back and forth to the office and all and, and, and meetings and everything. So, um, so first of all, we knew we could and we have multiplied the pace of just how much content we churn out. And now the process, so we it really every month it starts with this list of 25 to 30 words. We see what we already have that's planned and how it, uh, and when we just check off words that we have something planned for. Mm. And if we don't, we look internally for subject matter experts to write something about it or come up with ideas. And then we do it as well with our freelance writers, great team of freelance writers that work with us on PostFunnel. They are very devoted. They've been with us for a long time. They know the, the areas uh, of expertise very well, even though they're professional writers and they are not subject matter experts of, of um, B2C CRM. So we just check uh, words off the, the list and we just try to make sure we, we also have a key that says, all right, we got these 25 keywords, but it's not that every month we're going to talk about each one of them one time and one mm-hmm. time only. So segmentation, again, if we go back to that, we'll talk about segmentation five times a month between the 50 different items we publish and about um, emerging conversational channels we will talk about once every other month. So we got this key that eventually adds up to the same number of pieces that we that we make. So again, if we if you take the twenty five keywords, and you say okay, segmentation is three points, and a conversation emerging conversational channel is is half a point a month. So altogether, it's two topics, but it's three and a half points a month. I see. And if and if we know we can produce content, fifty pieces of content a month, we have fifty points to allocate. I see. Okay. So this is how we do it every month by month. Is it a bit of a, a hub and spoke strategy? So you kind of write about various angles, say around segmentation. Are there subtopics around that to target more specific keywords from an SEO perspective, for example? Uh, can you please repeat that? Yeah. So let me let me try rephrase it. Do you have uh, a bit of a hub and spoke approach to that content? So let's say you want to write several pieces of content around the topic of segmentation would you mm-hmm. create content that targets a specific like long tail keyword around that topic mm. all right so we used to do that okay but uh, in 2020 optimove adopted abm which right. is um, a completely new paradigm especially for something like post funnel because yeah. post funnel is again very top funnelly it even reaches, you said, someone like yourself that used to work for B2B that isn't the, the target audience, mm. reaches a lot of people within in this agencies that want to learn and consume this content. So it's a very top funnel kind of operation. And when you do ABM, which is, ABM is basically, and I hope I'm not offending anyone <laughs> by saying it, but ABM is sales on steroids. Yeah. You're taking the, the marketing team and you're really heavily shifting it towards exactly the targets that sales is aiming at. So... So something like PostFunnel feels maybe out of place. So what we did, instead of chasing long-tail keywords like we have been doing up until 2020, in the past year, we started talking specifically about, well, a quite long, but a finite list of brands that are on the target list of the ABM sales team. So instead of chasing, again, these long-tail keywords, we are chasing specific brands 
So if I want to talk about segmentation, so for example, what I would do, and we've been doing that for the last year and a half, we always come up with franchises or series, mm, right? Gotcha. So that's something that I, it's a, maybe a page we took from a Netflix book. Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk about segmentation, we come up with a series with a title or topic, and then we break it down into chapters and we find someone to write those chapters. We can, by the way, we're thinking about releasing those things in like a batch. So like uh, when a show drops yeah. on, on Netflix. But the point is that we would, if we write something about segmentation and we come up with seven episodes, so most likely each episode would be dedicated to a specific brand. Yeah. And that brand would happen to be on the ABM list. That's interesting. Have you, have you started executing on that? Oh, yes, yes. About a year ago. Yeah. I would say nine months ago. Okay. And yeah, uh, what we are seeing is um, every month, significant percentages of our tier one, tier two, tier three ABM lists visit PostFunnel. Amazing. How do you distribute that content to make sure it gets in front of them? So first of all, we mentioned the companies and we really talk about things that they are doing. You know, hoping that there's someone on that company that has a Slack bot that tells them every time someone posts <laughs> Yeah. So that seems to be working, even though most people have been working from home in 2020, which means all those reverse IP uh, technology that tells us what companies they work for, mm. they, you know, they don't work as good as they do when everyone works from the office, because if someone works for company X, but now goes to post funnel from their home, we don't know necessarily that they work for company X. So we can only recognize about 15 to 20% of our traffic instead of closer to 70 or 80 in like previous years. But still, it gives us a good enough of a, you know estimation of what, where we're heading. So first of all, we mentioned the companies when we talk about the actual things that they do, especially in CRM, in advertising, and the things that we can help with. And then when we post things on social media, obviously, we tag people. Mm. We tag specific marketeers. We tag the, tag the companies. And those things have started or even restarted direct sales conversations with prospects already Amazing. last year. At the beginning, when they introduced ABM internally, I was, all right, what does it mean to post for post funnel? But I think that in the last few months, we found the, the formula. Yeah. We just do those series of content, like, uh, again, these like, shows, right? We release them in seasons, and every episode is dedicated to a different company, and it's been working. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Is SEO still a priority for your content then on the back end of ABM? Yeah, less, a little less. Yeah. That, that's Not fair. as high as it used to be. Understandable, especially if you're trying to get it into the hands of people at specific target accounts, right? Um, When you go about, say, tagging an individual on social media, and I'm getting really into the weeds here, but let's say on LinkedIn you share a post, you've just written an article about, say, Allbirds, and you want to get it in front of the director of marketing. How do you, like, contextually say, hey, have a look at this? Or, or, Yeah. yeah, how do you do it? So usually it won't be with, you know, the page, the post funnel page. Usually the person that would do that would be the BDR or the salesperson that already has this Allbirds marketeer mm. connected to them on LinkedIn. Gotcha. So they would usually do the personal approach. I would tag Allbirds in the post, which is fine. But then the more personal one would be, usually would be done by the BDR or the salesperson that already has this uh, content. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, then it's a little less intrusive. They know each other, at least, you know, they're connected on LinkedIn and it's not completely out of the blue. Yeah, absolutely. What does your content production process look like for the, that series then? Do you work with freelance writers who are familiar with the brand or have some kind of subject matter expertise? How do you prioritize which freelance writers you get involved? 
So it depends on the topic. If the topic is very technical and requires a very good understanding of not just CRM, but of Optimove and its history and the product, then we most likely go internally. We'll interview or sit with or you know, talk to subject matter experts from the data team, the professional services team, the, mm. the customer services teams. And then eventually, obviously, the heavy lifting on the writing would be on us, the content team. But if it's a topic such as just customer loyalty, which is very, you know, broad and top funnily in the way we approach it, then first of all, I would go to our regulars, right? the, the writers that work with us. And if it won't work for whatever reason, you know, their availability, our needs, or even where they feel comfortable with, I would look for an expert on just on LinkedIn. And I'm giving the loyalty example because we did this specific one with someone named Nicola Fox. She's also based in the UK. She's an experienced and well-respected loyalty expert within the world of B2C and direct-to-consumer and retail. And the way she was able to break down loyalty into seven different chapters was uh, amazing to us. Mm. And, And then when she wrote the things, obviously... It's, not, it's very different than writing, than working with a professional writer. You yeah. work with a professional writer, you need to bring your expertise of the matter. You work with someone like her, she's such an expert, we eventually obviously made, you know, bring the, the final touches in terms of the crafting the content and, yeah. and, and everything around it. But once we had the seven chapters, we started releasing them in specific, like in two weeks um, intervals, and then it turned into an ebook as well. Amazing. How do you um, incentivize p- people like that to get involved? Because seven, seven or f- you know, five to seven articles is quite a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah for, sure, what's, for sure. What's in it for her? First of all, when we work with people at those kind of commitment levels, then we got a budget for it. But sometimes when it's just a one-off kind of collaboration, so sometimes people come to us, right? They would w- want to write a guest post because PostFunnel has... I don't know, between all different channels and newsletters and everything, more than 50,000 subscribers and followers, marketeers of kinds. So if you're a marketeer, you want to get in front of them, writing and a guest post for PostFunnel obviously um, is worth quite a lot. So if it's a one-off, especially if, it, if the suggestion came from the, the other side, then we'll do guest posts and then mm-hmm. maybe exchange referrals and, and you know social shares and stuff like that. But when we work with someone on um, a more robust project, then additionally to that, there would be, you know, just standard compensation. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. I reckon that's a really good place to wrap up. Um, thank you so much for spilling the beans. You've, yeah. you've shared a tremendous amount of gold. Where can people learn more about you? So I don't know. Most of the things you can find about me are in Hebrew. So that would be how to you know, would be lost in translation. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I would uh, just, you know, uh, recommend visiting PostFunnel, maybe subscribing to the newsletter. I think what we are doing with our Tuesday's newsletters is our version for, I want to say marketing brew. But these, I knew you were going to say marketing But brew. these guys yeah. are just so good that I don't want to say, you know, that that's what we're doing, but that's what we're, yeah. we hope to maybe be one day. Trying to aspire to Yes, but um, we also keep it much shorter. Our Tuesday newsletters are between 500 and 600 words. An average marketing brew would be around 2,000 words. Yeah. And we try to give a good mix of a professional take, a couple of tips, 
few links outside, you know, uh, from best of web, a few internal links to things that we wrote. And you know, the one thing I think we did, it was quite easy to execute in 2020 and we're really proud of, and we, we, we know that it already brought a lot of value to people. And we actually have basically, we don't see much from it for ourselves, but we started a CRM only job board on PostFunnel. Mm. So we post on it. We survey the biggest job boards out there and the hundreds of Optimove clients and look only for CRM-related job boards, uh, job openings. We put them all on one page with links to the actual you know, job opening on the companies, the other companies' page. And we update it once a week. And we also refer to it with the new ones um, every Tuesday on our newsletter. So... Yeah, that's my plug, I would say. Our Tuesday newsletters is something that we're really proud of. And if you can uh, sign up, give it a chance for a couple of weeks, we'd be very happy. Perfect. I know I'll be subscribing. Nitsen, thank you ever so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much as well. And good luck. Thanks for listening. Before you dash, just a quick note to share a free ebook we just published called The Content Operations Playbook. If you're interested in content marketing and SEO, then this ebook is for you. We lift the hood up on our own editorial and content production processes from hiring writers, creating solid content briefs, polishing content to be the best it can be, and of course, distributing it to actually generate traffic. It's totally free and you can download it over at grizzle.io forward slash content ops. That's www.grizzle.io forward slash content ops. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, feel free to subscribe. We've got a lot of great conversations lined up with experts in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship coming up. Thanks again.